Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Centering on Coronavirus podcast from the News Center. Each week, we'll be bringing you insights and analysis of how COVID-19 is progressing, how it's impacting our health system, economy, and workers, and the extraordinary human, policy, and technological resources being mobilized to fight it. As we've seen over the last few months, nursing homes and long-term care facilities have been hotspots for COVID-19 infections. The close proximity of living arrangements and the unique vulnerability of residents make congregate living facilities like these ripe for the easy spread of the virus. And to date, almost 50% of all COVID-19 related deaths within the United States have been those who work or live in nursing homes. But the susceptibility of nursing home residents to virulent pathogens wasn't exactly new knowledge. And to make matters worse, one of the first known cases of COVID-19 within the United States actually started in a nursing home. Since we knew the impact on nursing homes would be bad, why did officials allow it to get this bad? To help us make sense of the issue, New Center Policy Analyst Alexander Sardanovic is joined by Greg Durvin, a research fellow from the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, to discuss COVID-19 and its impact on nursing homes. Here's Alexandra and Greg. My name is Greg Gervin. Uh, I am the uh, research fellow at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. In my responsibilities, I uh, perform a lot of the data analysis that we do, especially on the healthcare side. And so we have several projects going on even before the coronavirus came onto the scene. Essentially, uh, I dive deep into the different issues with a lot of different aspects of healthcare policy. We've been working quite a bit on doing a country by country comparison of healthcare systems. It's been an ongoing project we've been working on for, for quite a while now. Uh, but uh, obviously when the coronavirus hit, we definitely pivoted toward that. And uh, that's been what we've been talking about. A lot of people are now familiar with our work, given that they've seen our comprehensive plan on reopening the economy, even despite the coronavirus pandemic. And this sort of free op plan that we have for that has, has gotten a lot of attention. It, we were really the first ones to ask the question, if we don't have an effective treatment, if a vaccine doesn't come on the scene anytime soon, if at all, and if we have trouble with other things like scaling up testing, what do we do then? Uh, do we just remain locked down or do we find in the data and what we know about the virus a way or ways to selectively reopen in certain ways so that we can get as many people as possible back to school, back to work, and still protect those who are most vulnerable? And out of that plan uh, that we've been talking about for a couple months now, it began to emerge in the data that the nursing home crisis was really starting to, to become a real problem. It was really showing up in the data. And so we've gone to talking about that and doing some deep research into that and finding out really what is the extent of the crisis in nursing homes. And when you discover that, you know, well over 40% of people who've died from the virus so far are nursing home and assisted living residents, and yet they only comprise 0.6% of the population that 
gives you a very clear indication that this is an extraordinary problem within nursing homes, but it also informs how we reopen the rest of the economy. Uh, it, it tells us that maybe the sort of the optimistic view here is that the fact that so much of the problem is concentrated in nursing homes means that it may not be the same danger or threat to those outside of nursing homes, including those who are elderly, um, as, as we per- perhaps thought before. Uh, so, you know, th- these are all kinds of different issues that I that I dig into. I dig really into the data aspect of this so that we can answer some of these critical questions and help us inform the policy recommendations that we make. Right. And I think to your point, bringing up these questions that not a lot of people are asking about, you know, what are we going to do uh, to reopen if there is no vaccine? I think there's been a lot of talk of people expecting there to be, you know, a vaccine and a lot of different therapeutics that just haven't come to fruition yet and so I think that the work you guys are doing is very pertinent. I guess on the topic of nursing homes you know you brought up that that statistic of over 40 percent of these nursing home and assisted living uh, facility residents um, accounting for 42 percent of deaths. We knew pretty early on into the pandemic that the disease would be particularly deadly for older people with underlying health issues, which of course describes a lot of the people who live in nursing homes. Um, and I'm wondering if you think the these local or federal government entities acted too late to protect them? Do you think that they took action, but it was just inevitable? Well, there, there are certainly uh, the thought out there that uh, these particular places were vulnerable prior to the pandemic. If we look at you know, just the hundreds of thousands of people, nursing home residents, who are infected every year by any number of different uh, bacterial or viral pathogens. And this is this is a pretty common problem, it, it just outside of there being the coronavirus. There's, there's certainly the thought out there that this was a vulnerable population to begin with. That being said, what we kept hearing as this became a larger and larger problem in the United States was that we have to institute these lockdowns and we have to engage in social distancing and all these other different pandemic tactics that were from this previous playbook for influenza type viruses where we needed to shut things down in order to prevent our hospitals from being overrun. So that was really the the main focus was to make sure that hospitals were not uh, were able to handle the influx of patients that were going to come in, that were going to have to uh, take up those those ICU beds. And so, when the original plans were being drawn up by federal, state, local governments to deal with the crisis the focus was completely on hospitals. And unfortunately, that meant that these other areas like nursing homes, assisted living facilities, they did not get prioritized like our hospitals did. And and there was good reason to prioritize the hospitals. Uh, and certainly in, in certain urban areas like New York City, where uh, there was a huge spike in the number of patients and the number of hospitalizations. But it's become clear looking back that 
this was an area where really all levels of government, federal, state, local government, did not did not measure up in terms of being able to protect those who truly are the most vulnerable. You have to think, if you look at the people that are in uh, nursing homes and their levels of need, you talked you talked about the comorbidities that that these people had. These were people that are our people that need a tremendous amount of help. They have high uh, prevalence of cardiovascular disease, diabetes. There are a lot of these, you can imagine among this pandemic with people who, for instance, are diabetic and they need to leave their nursing home to have dialysis. You think about the the danger that presents for that individual with the coronavirus and this this uh, increased likelihood that they would become infected simply because they have to leave the nursing home and undergo dialysis and then you look the other way where a lot you have a lot of these uh, healthcare workers in nursing homes that don't live at the facility obviously they have lives outside of the facility and oftentimes they would get infected they'd be asymptomatic and they'd bring the virus right into the nursing home where because of the congregate nature of nursing homes where oftentimes residents are sharing a room uh, sometimes there's even up to four in one large uh, or up to four that are sharing a bathroom, for instance. Mm-hmm. And then combine that with the fact that, you know, these these facilities have had difficulties in the past with infection control. And then layer on top of that, the fact that you have an elderly population that has a lot of these comorbidities. It was really a perfect storm for widespread infections and for a high fatality rate. This is obviously something that we're going to have to reckon with uh, as as the pandemic, you know, one one day eventually dies down and we're looking back and assessing all of this. It's pretty clear that our model for protecting uh, really the most vulnerable among us uh, pretty much failed. And we've got to make some major changes in order to protect residents from the next pandemic. Right. And yeah, I think that the general perspective on how the federal government and states approach the nursing home issue has been negative. Uh, but do you think that there's any states whose policies have been particularly successful at preventing the spread? Like you found, you know, some states that have lower rates of cases and deaths in nursing homes, um, some that have been particularly unsuccessful, or do you think it's uh, pretty much the same across the board? Well, uh, for, for sure, there have been problems with this particular population since the pandemic began pretty much across the United States with certain exceptions. Mm -hmm. There are a few states, for example, the ones that come to my mind are states like Alaska and Hawaii that haven't had really any fatalities or they've only had uh, some in the single digits. A part of that simply has to do with the fact that those are populations that are more remote. They're more removed from where the epicenters of the virus have been. Uh, contrast that with essentially New England. If you look really from along the uh, the I ninety five corridor from basically Maryland up through Massachusetts, you've had uh, really high rates of infection and, and high fatality rates. 
especially in nursing homes. And part of that simply has to do with the fact that that's where the epicenter of the virus has been and the population is more dense there. And so you're going to have more nursing homes there. And on top of that, you're just going to have people in closer proximity to one another. So there's that factor. If you look at other states, though, that do have higher levels of population, for instance, you have a state like Texas or Florida, those couple states have done a reasonably uh, better job of keeping the virus out of their nursing homes. Part of that has to do with the fact that very early on, they made a conscious decision to, so when a nursing home resident had to go to the hospital for further treatment, they made a conscious decision to not send those residents back to the nursing home before they were they were completely clear of the virus. And you look at other states like New York under Governor Cuomo's orders, uh, you look at a state like Michigan that is still doing this. They are still taking patients that were in nursing homes. They're treating them in the hospital. And then out of fear that their hospitals would be overrun, that they would not have enough beds. And this is the optimistic viewpoint that they that they put forth, that, that we had to do this in order to protect our hospitals, to, to prevent them from being overrun. They're, they're sending these individuals back to the nursing home before they're, they've been completely cleared of the virus, before they've fully recovered. And it's pretty clear that that has been yet another way that the virus has spread throughout these facilities. You know, a lot, a lot of these state governments that have, have had these orders in the past or still have them in place now will say, we have procedures in place to separate those individuals and to keep them uh, separate from the rest of the nursing home population. But the fact is, there are a lot of nursing homes that were not even equipped to do that, and yet they were still being forced to take these patients back into nursing homes. And so really the first thing that has to be done in order to address the crisis in nursing homes is these orders need to be rescinded. It's very clear looking at the data that the rate of hospitalizations has for the most part across the country been on the decline. There are a few states, a few localities where there's an uptick as uh, testing has increased, as the states have opened up. But for the most part, the rates of hospitalizations have been on the decline and there is plenty of capacity in hospitals. And so these orders need to be rescinded and that's first and foremost. States like uh, Texas and Florida never had those orders in place, and rightly so, in order to prevent that infection, the infections from, from starting, from those individuals being returned to the nursing home. And so it's policies like that and a little bit more forward-thinking policies that have helped states like Texas and Florida. As I said, going forward, these orders need to be rescinded, but it, on top of that, there need to be better protocols put in place for infection control. We need to ensure that these uh, that these facilities have adequate uh, personal uh, protective equipment for the staff as well. Uh, that's something that, again, we prioritized that for hospitals and made sure that we ramped up PPE capacity for hospitals, but nursing homes really became an afterthought. And there are plenty of nursing homes according to the data that we've seen that 
either don't have uh, enough PPE right now or they don't have enough to handle a surge in cases within their facilities. And so those are some of the things that uh, state and local governments really need to focus on. So it seems like those reforms are very COVID-focused, you know, providing PPE and making sure that they have these infection protocols in place. But a lot of the issues that the states have had with their COVID-19 policies, it seems like, have been exacerbated by a lot of underlying and long-standing issues identified in, you know, how nursing homes are run and regulated, namely, you know, Mm underfunding and it seems like there's lapses in state inspections and there's uh, inadequate training for staff and so I'm wondering you know what are some of the broader and long-term reforms that you feel like are necessary to ensure that these nursing home residents have better living conditions um, you know once COVID-19 is passed. Sure, Alexander, you bring up a really good point here, and that is that the problems that we're seeing in nursing homes in relation to the coronavirus and really in relation to any major disease outbreak is the fact that this has been a longstanding problem and a structural problem uh, that has really been multiple decades in the making. Uh, This is also something that I've written about recently where uh, really the you look at the business model of nursing homes and it really lends itself to the problems that you're seeing right now, especially in terms of understaffing and in terms of not having adequate infection controls and PPE storage. You have to understand what's the business model. How are these nursing homes really being run? And It's really a question or it's really the idea is to follow the money as with so many other things that it's really about where is the money coming from in order for these nursing homes to operate. Really, in this country, most people don't realize that the, the, the oversized role that Medicaid plays in paying for residents in nursing homes. So to kind of step back a little bit and tell you how this works, for nursing home residents, you basically have two subsets of populations. One is those who are going to nursing homes for a specified shorter duration of time in order to recover from a major surgical procedure, say a hip replacement. And so these people are in there for post-acute care, as they call it. These individuals, when they're elderly, age 65 or older, Medicare is paying for those individuals. And Medicare pays at a much higher reimbursement rate than Medicaid does. Contrast that with the second subpopulation, and these are the individuals that are in long-term care facilities and nursing homes for a longer period of time or indefinitely. And these are individuals that are not necessarily there because they've had a, a surgical procedure or something to that effect. They're there because they need assistance with what we call activities of daily living or ADLs. And these are things that we often take for granted in our normal everyday life, but they're things like walking, dressing, eating, uh, getting in and out of bed, so that what they call transferring. Uh, These uh, particular individuals need assistance with those kinds of activities. They can't do them on their own anymore. And so these individuals typically are in these facilities and are being paid for by Medicaid. Uh, and, and this really has a lot to do with just the way that the Medicaid law has been written over time. And what we find is when
when when nursing homes or when long-term care was originally made part of uh, Medicaid or it being a service reimbursed by Medicaid, uh, they were just for nursing homes. That was the only thing Medicaid would reimburse for back in the early 70s. And so there became what we call an institutional bias where people were getting long-term care services in nursing homes only, really in what we call institutional settings. These are settings that are higher levels of care, and they look a lot more like hospitals if you look at just the way they're structured physically. And so the thing to remember is that with Medicaid, they're getting paid at a much lower reimbursement rate. And so what these nursing facilities often have to do is they have to increase their mix of Medicare patients or patients who are paying through long-term care insurance or simply paying out of pocket in order to cover uh, the residents that are paying through Medicaid because the Medicaid reimbursement rates often don't even cover their cost of care. Mm -hmm. And so nursing homes, because they have such a high level of Medicaid patients, uh, on average, 62% of, of nursing home residents are on Medicaid. When you look at that fact, you could see how they operate on pretty razor thin margins. Then if you look at layer on top of that, the coronavirus pandemic and how that's affected that case mix, you still have a lot of these people who are in there who are on Medicaid, but because the hospitals have been closed to non-elective procedures, the number of residents that are paying through Medicare that are just there for post-acute care has decreased rapidly because nobody's having those surgical procedures done with the hospitals being closed down. They're only starting to reopen in certain places now. And so that's a major revenue stream that the nursing homes have also lost out on, on top of the fact that nobody wants to live in a nursing home right now, understandably so, given the crisis that's been going on. And so you have really, prior to the pandemic, a very uh, tenuous and very shaky business model to begin with that has just been blown apart by the pandemic. And so going forward, what is this going to look like? What is long-term care going to look like? And the answer is we don't know for sure, but we can certainly, looking at how things are, are breaking down right now, it's pretty clear that the demand for living in a nursing home is going to go down even further. The problem, again, is that there are certain ways in which the Medicaid laws are written that still bias toward placing people in nursing homes. They've done quite a number of things over the years with Medicaid waivers to try to encourage people to receive these kinds of services in their home or in the community and in uh, lower impact settings so that uh, they could still receive these services in the community, but, but not be as intense. But that being said, a lot of those waivers have waiting lists and there, there just isn't enough room for a lot of those people to pull down those services in Medicaid. So they still end up in a nursing home anyway. And looking forward, we really have to deal with that. That's going to be a structural problem that has to be dealt with and reformed one way or another. Uh, we, we definitely need to introduce more flexibility into the Medicaid program so that these individuals 
at least for now, can seek long-term care services in other settings other than nursing homes. We don't even know how many nursing homes are going to be around, really, (laughs) after the the pandemic uh, sort of fizzles out. We just don't know how many are going to survive. There's probably going to be a lot of consolidation in the industry as well. And so the industry is in in upheaval right now. And, and so really what, what we need to do is we need to be thinking more holistically and from a 30,000-foot view and say, how are we going to provide these services to individuals and how are we going to pay for it? Because clearly the model that we have now is not sustainable. We need to find ways to encourage people to save for this, to, to increase their uptake of long-term care insurance. It's easier said than done because – of the the market power, so to say, that Medicaid has in long-term care. But that is going to have to change because of what's going on on the ground. That's, that's a really fascinating point that you make about the funding structure. Um, I think a lot of people probably don't know how much of an impact that has on how these nursing homes are run. So thank you for diving deep into that. Sure. Um, I think those are all the big points that I wanted to cover with you um, on my end, unless you think that there's anything that we missed that you thought was really like insightful or important to bring up? Yeah, I think what's uh, the last thing that I would mention is the fact that, you know, throughout this whole thing, it's been very difficult to obtain data. As somebody who works with this on a daily basis, it's been difficult to find out what's been going on in certain states and even in states like Michigan, where Again, they still have these orders in place to send uh, recovering patients back to nursing homes, and yet you can't even get accurate numbers from the state in terms of, you know, how many people are infected, how many fatalities have, have happened in these different facilities. Now, CMS is really trying to uh, obtain this data, and they, in early May, they put that into place where all the nursing homes that were receiving either Medicare or Medicaid funding were required to report to CMS on data points such as the ones I've mentioned. Uh, And the thing to remember about that is that that rollout has been shaky. It's been uh, the the data that they have out right now is not, not accurate or at least at the level of accuracy that we want to see. Uh, we've been diving into this data, and for instance, there have been nursing homes that have re- that somehow reported that they had five, six, seven hundred fatalities in their nursing homes, and yet these are nursing homes that may only have a hundred or a hundred and fifty beds to begin with. So the, some of the data has not uh, been released to the pu- public properly, and so we just have to wait for that and 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 wait for those corrections in order for us to give a better idea or at least for that comprehensive nationwide reporting to give us some clear pictures. But we should be getting uh, better updates in the coming weeks as we go. That being said, again, at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, we've been going really state by state and finding this data. And uh, the, the again, the, the most underappreciated fact or statistic in this whole pandemic is the fact that, again, over 40 percent, according to our calculations, over 42 percent 
of people who have died from the virus have died in nursing homes, and they only make up 0.6% of the entire U.S. population. And because of that, we know that we can take steps to reopen the economy, to reopen schools, because it's a much less significant threat to those populations than it is to, say, folks in nursing homes. And so this is the really the most underappreciated statistic. And once people really understand that, it, it will help to inform the policy decisions that we make going forward so that we can still protect the most vulnerable without completely wrecking the economy, you know, with with tens of millions that, have, uh, that are unemployed. These are things that we can prevent. We can begin to repair the country. Right. Thank you so much, Greg. Um, I really appreciate you sure. taking the time. Uh, this has been really insightful. Absolutely. Well, it was my pleasure. Great. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Centering on Coronavirus from the New Center. Please do be sure to visit newcenter.org to sign up for updates and stay tuned for another episode next week.